The following sermon is from Faith Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Join us on Sundays for our 8.15 and 11 a.m. worship services. For more information, visit us online at faith-pca.org. If you have a copy of God's Word, if you could turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark chapter 14 this morning. Verses 12 through 25, it'll be in your bulletin. It'll also be on the screen behind me. And I encourage you to keep your Bibles open this morning. We will be referring to some of the surrounding context. Uh, As we continue our study through Mark, remember where we are. We're in the last week, and the last week of Jesus' life takes up a third of the book. And we're in the last week of Jesus' life. It's now Thursday, and so it's the evening of Passover... Jesus will be crucified the next day on Good Friday. And so I want you to follow along with me as I read this amazing passage. Uh, Remember one of the things I ask you, people say, how can I pray for you? And I always say, pray that the Bible would keep coming alive. Because it's easy uh, in my position for this book, the Bible, to be like a textbook and to lead you to a boring yawn. It's easy to get there. And so I've had you pray for me that the Bible would be living and active, which it is, and it would come alive in my soul, and that I would love the Bible more and love Jesus more. And I want to say thank you because that's happening. It happened in my life this week. I love Jesus more, and I believe the Bible more as a result of this passage. So with that in mind, follow along with me. This is God's Word. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. They prepare, uh, they're prepared for us, prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day, when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
This is God's word. Let's pray. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to come and help us this morning. Let's pray together. Father, you tell us that we do not live by bread alone, but from every mouth, from every word that comes from the mouth of God, that comes from you. And so would you feed us this morning? I pray that you would take this word and you would apply it to each and every heart uh, in this room, those that are listening online or in an overflow room. I pray that you would meet us, that you would teach us, that you would show us the beauty of Jesus and that we would love him more. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, meals or eating is a very important part of life. Think about the number of things that we celebrate around a meal. We could, I could list a lot. Let's list a few. Weddings. You have a rehearsal dinner. You have a meal at the reception. Uh, business transactions or deals that are closed are often done so over a meal. You have a first date over a meal. Retirement parties are often done around a table, reconnecting with old friends around a table. You tailgate at football games, graduation dinners, anniversary dinners. Every year, our country celebrates a meal called Thanksgiving. The table is a significant part of life. And it's also a very significant part of the Christian faith. The reason why you and I are so drawn to the table to mark something significant and special, it's because that's what God does. God marks something significant in the Bible, oftentimes with a meal. Think about God delivering his people from the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. They marked it with a meal called the Passover. Christians believe, if you're a Christian this morning, the world is going to end with what? A meal. Revelation chapter 19 says that Jesus will usher in and we will feast at the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And here in Mark chapter 14, Jesus reveals something very significant. It is really important. Jesus reveals himself in a deeper and richer and fuller way tells us more about his mission. And where does he do it? He does it at a meal, around a table. And so we're going to gather this morning in Mark chapter 14, we're going to gather with the disciples around this table. And we're going to learn something about ourselves, we're going to learn something about Jesus, and we're going to learn something about this meal that we partake of every single week in our church called the Lord's Supper. Three things this morning, if you're a note taker, the context for the meal, secondly, the meaning of the meal, and lastly, we'll look at the application of the meal. So the context, the meaning, and the application, let's jump in with our first heading, the context. Look at verses 12 through 16. You'll notice in those few verses, there's a word repeated three times, it's the word prepare, Jesus and his disciples, they have been, last week if you remember, and earlier in Mark 14, they were at Bethany and 
the home of Simon the leper, and what were they doing? They liked to eat. They were eating. They were around the table, and now it's time to celebrate the Passover. They're in the city of Jerusalem, and preparations were needed for the Passover. 1,500 years. Think about that history. 1,500 years God's people had celebrated the Passover, and it was uh, a defining moment in Israel's history. It was established in Exodus chapter 12. The Pharaoh would not let God's people go. And so what does God do? Remember, he sends ten plagues upon them. And the final plague, he sends the angel of death to sweep through the land, killing all of the firstborns. But there was a way out, wasn't there? There was an escape. What did you have to do to escape or for God to pass you over? Well, you had to slay a lamb and you had to put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And as the angel of death swept through the land, he would see the blood on the doorpost and he would pass over your home, saving your firstborn. Needless to say, the Passover was a huge deal for the Jewish people. It was a huge deal because it celebrated God's grace to them and God's love for them and his deliverance from Egypt. And so all that to say, the question was obvious in the disciples' minds. It's Passover, we've got to celebrate this meal. And so where should we go, Jesus, to make preparations for the Passover? And Jesus sends two of the disciples into the city. You see it there in the text. And he says, you look for a contact. And the contact will be a man carrying a water jar. And so this man would lead them to the room where they could prepare the Passover. And the disciples did exactly as Jesus had told them. And it happened exactly. That's a whole other sermon. You see that all the way through. Jesus knew all these things. He's all-knowing. But Jesus knew, they did what they were told, and Jesus knew exactly um, what, what needed to happen, and it did, and they prepared the Passover. And so we've got the context for the meal, and really the context for this passage that we're looking at it, it's Passover, but we go even deeper into the context on this particular night when you look at who is around the dinner table on this night. Look at verses 17 through 21. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. They were sorrowful and said to him, one after another, is it I? A better translation, and commentators point this out, is actually the New International Version, the NIV, which says, surely you don't mean me. One of you will betray me, and then one after another, they each said, Surely you're not talking about me, Jesus. And Jesus responds, look back at the text, it's one of the twelve, one who's dipping bread into the dish with me. We know the story because we have our Bibles in front of us, and we know that Jesus is talking about Judas in this particular passage. But if you look in your Bibles at verse 27... Jesus actually broadens his prediction, doesn't he? And he goes on to say, every one of you are going to sell me out. You're going to abandon me, 
and fall away. They did not believe Jesus when they were around this table in this upper room. They didn't believe him then. And they do not believe Jesus later in this chapter when he says that they will all be scattered. But you know what? They were. It happened exactly as Jesus said it would. And so the point is that, and what I want you to see is that the backdrop for this meal with Jesus was the failure of the disciples. Jesus is eating this meal, his final meal, with sellouts, deniers, and betrayers, with failures. And my question for us this morning is, what would you have said that night if you were around this table? If Jesus said, somebody is going to betray me at this table, would you have said, Jesus, I know my heart, and that is entirely possible for me to do. Please, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or would you have said, like the disciples, surely you don't mean me. Surely not I. Friends, if you do not believe that you have denial and the betrayal of Jesus in your heart, then you do not understand your heart very well. We are naive and don't know our hearts if we think we're above something else, and we do this all the time, don't we? We think we're above something else, something that we see in someone else. We think we're above it. How often do we look at someone, and we need to be very careful if our hearts start saying this, can you believe them? Can you believe they did that? I would never dare do such a thing. Be careful. The Bible says the seeds of each and every sin reside in our hearts as well. And when we think we don't need Jesus as much as other people need Jesus, then we're in big trouble. You see, a posture of pride and a posture of self-righteousness and independence leads to betraying and denying Jesus. Why? Because it's a posture that says, I'm good. I don't need a Savior of sinners. I have a friend of mine I was with last week. He's a fellow pastor. I was in seminary with him, and he said recently, he was telling me a story about his young son, and he said his young son, they were... Uh, hanging out in the backyard, and his son said, Dad, I know something that we're better at than God. My friend's thinking, oh no, he's a heretic. He says, son, what's that? And his son replied, sinning. And then his son goes on to say, we picked the worst thing to be the best at. Do you believe that this morning? Everyone around this table on this Passover night was a sinner desperately in need of rescue, desperately in need of Jesus and his grace. And what this passage is doing right from the very beginning is inviting us into the story to see ourselves in the disciples, to see our heart and their heart as they sat around this table at the Passover feast. The preparations have been made. The context is set. And now it's time to eat. 
Now it's time for the meal. More importantly, the meaning of the meal. And that's our second heading, the meaning of the meal. And before we dig in here, a lot of teaching in this second point. But if we listen and hang in there, I think you'll find something very rich and something that will lead you to love this meal even more, the Lord's Supper. So let's dig in, verses 22 through 25. The first thing that we need to know is we live in a fast food culture. This was not fast food. The Passover was a very slow meal. It was a meal that was meant for lingering and remembering and celebrating. Look at verse 22. Mark brings us into the middle of the meal. And at this point, the disciples don't think anything is all that different. Keep in mind, they have been celebrating for 1,500 years. Thanksgiving's only been around for 400 years. 1,500 years they've been celebrating uh, and remembering God's deliverance from Egypt. And they do it with eating lamb, unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and drinking wine. It was a long tradition in their culture. And so here's the point. They knew the traditions. They knew this meal like the back of their hand. They knew exactly what to expect and when to expect it when working through the Passover meal. Four cups of wine would be passed around the table. And with the wine that was being passed around, a promise would be declared. And the promises are taken from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, that has four I will statements in it. The first cup is passed, and it comes out, the first cup is passed before the food, before the lamb and unleavened bread and the bitter herbs. And the presider, which we, or the host of the meal, which would have been the father, but in this particular situation, it's Jesus. But the host of the meal would stand up, and he would hold up the first cup, and they would pass it around, and he would declare the promise, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And the cup would be passed around. And then after the cup was passed around, the food would come in and the youngest person at the table would stand up. This was the tradition. And they would ask the traditional question, Father, why do we eat these foods on this night? And the father would stand up and preach. He would recount the goodness of God in the Exodus. The story of God's grace. And then they would sing songs of celebration from Psalm 113 through 115 about the grace and the enduring love of God forever. And then the food would come out, the bread and the meat and the herbs. And then the second cup would be passed around with this promise, I will redeem you from slavery. And just before the meal was about to be eaten, the host would hold up the plate of unleavened bread. And he would, he would extend a blessing over the elements on the table using these words. This is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. And so the unleavened bread was a sign of their suffering and their affliction in the wilderness. And so after giving thanks, he would call them, those that are, were around the table, to remember their suffering. To remember their affliction by breaking off a piece of the bread and passing it around to every person that was present at the meal. 
it would be passed around and you were to eat that bread in complete silence. And again, everyone at this point, this is tradition, we're following right along in the meal. All that's about to change. Verse 22, we step into the second cup. And Jesus breaks the silence. Look at 22, as they were eating, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them and said, take. He says, take instead of this bread is the bread of our affliction. Jesus says, this is my body. Okay, think about that for a moment. 1,500-year tradition, the disciples would have picked up on this right away and thought, what in the world is Jesus doing? He's breaking tradition. What does this mean? And rather than saying that the unleavened bread was a sign of suffering and affliction, Jesus says, the suffering and affliction is my body. In other words, Jesus is saying, through my suffering, I will lead you through the ultimate exodus. I will lead my people through a greater exodus, not by rescuing them from Pharaoh, but an even greater enemy, the bondage to sin and to death. Next came the third cup. And most certainly at this point, those that were at the table are starting to think, I've got a feeling he's not talking about something 1,500 years ago. They would start to clue in that what Jesus is talking about is himself, the one who is standing right before them. And the third cup is passed around at that point with the promise, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. Verses 23 and 24, look at those with me. Jesus then took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. They all drank of it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is turning this meal on its head. He's turning it upside down. He is saying here that his body is the suffering and the affliction, and his blood, not the blood of a lamb on a doorpost, His blood is the covering from God's wrath and judgment. And he is saying to say it another way, the Passover that you've been celebrating for 1,500 years, that's about me. It all points to me. Did you know that no other gospel writer or no gospel writer mentions the fact that lamb was actually on the table at the Passover feast? With Jesus was with his disciples. They all mentioned the bread. No one mentions the lamb, which would have been tradition. Well, why in the world isn't lamb mentioned? Well, as one writer said, because the lamb was not on the table, because the lamb was at the table. That's the emphasis. All the lambs, the little lambs that had been slaughtered for thousands of years, for 1,500 years during Passover, pointed to this lamb. The ultimate and the final lamb of God. Jesus, who would come and be sacrificed for the sins of the world. 
Isaiah 53, 6 and 12. Listen and see if you can hear the similarities. He's talking, that Isaiah's prophesying about the suffering of Jesus and he says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter because he poured out his life unto death for he bore the sins, you hear it, for many. Revelation chapter 5. All the creatures are gathered around the throne of God and it says they are praising holy is the lamb who was slain. John chapter 1 verse 29. John the Baptist sees Jesus coming. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just as the first Passover was observed the night before God redeemed Israel out of slavery from the Egyptians by putting blood over the doorpost. This Passover meal was eaten the night before God would redeem the world through Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lastly, the application of the meal. Because on this night, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper that we partake every week at our church. It is a sacrament. What's a sacrament? A sacrament has been called visible words. It's the gospel made visible. So how do we see that in the Lord's Supper? Let me mention several points of application as we close. The Lord's Supper shows us the grace and the mercy of Jesus. The grace and the love of Jesus. Remember who's at the table in this passage. Sellouts. Failures, deniers, and betrayers. Friends, your hope this morning is not yourself. It's not your performance. It's not your goodness. It's not how good a week that you had. Your hope is in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We instinctively think that the things that we are ashamed of and the things in places where we failed in life, we think those are the things that keep us away from Jesus. And so that's why we often deflect, we often hide, we often defend, we often minimize our sin. But what I want you to think about here is Jesus knows this about his disciples, and he knows it about your heart as well. He knows somebody's going to betray him. He knows that, that Peter's going to deny him three times. And he knows that every single one of them will leave him in the end. And yet he presides and hosts this meal. And he's going to the cross the next day knowing that they're going to leave him. What would you have done if you were around the table and you knew every one of your friends were going to betray you and deny you and leave you? we wouldn't have stayed another minute. We would have gone up from that table as quickly as we could. Jesus stays. Jesus knows. Jesus knows that we will never love him as much as he loves us. And he's saying here, I'm going to walk into death. I'm going to walk into the cross for the very reason and for the very fact that I know you're going to fail me. That's why I'm going. 
because you will deny me and abandon me. To say it another way, the Lord's Supper is not centered around your commitment to Jesus. There's not one word mentioned around this table of their commitment. You know what the Lord's Supper is centered around? Everything is centered around Jesus' commitment to you. Everything that Jesus has done, everything that he'll do on Good Friday, he'll be crucified, was done not for good people and righteous people. It was done for sinners. And so you see, this table that we come to every week is where sinners like us go to get near to Jesus and get reminded of the gospel that on the cross, Jesus took what we deserve. That he took our sin and failure, it was put on him. The divine justice of God was poured out on Jesus so that you could be passed over forever. The sacraments are also called seals because they remind us of the gospel realities and they remind us that they are real and that they are true. They remind us that as certainly as you eat the bread and drink the cup, so certain is the fact that Jesus saves sinners. And so every time you partake of this meal, the certainty of your salvation should well up within you. Because it is as real as the bread you're about to eat. This was the disciples' hope, and this is our hope this morning. The other thing is the Lord's Supper must be received That's the second application. Unlike baptism, which is called a passive sacrament, uh, and it only takes place once, and it's performed once, the Lord's Supper is called an active sacrament because it's something we partake in over and over and over. We see it here in the significant words of Jesus. Take it. Take. Eat. For an illustration, think about it this way. Uh, You can have food in front of you, You can have the best chef in the world make you the best meal in the world and unless you eat it and take it, it means nothing. It's of no value to you. It's of no benefit. You also, we don't eat a meal and then never eat again. Wouldn't that be nice? You could eat a great meal and say, all right, I'm good for 10 years. That's not the way it works. You have, you're hungry in a few hours, so you have to continue to eat. Nor can you eat for someone else. You cannot eat, and the person next to you, this would be nice too, the person next to you be full. That's not the way it works. Well, that's not the way the gospel works either. You see, the gospel, you can know about Jesus, you can sing about Jesus, you can tell others about Jesus, But you've got to take Jesus. You've got to take him in. The gospel has to be received and Jesus has to be received and taken in personally. And and it has to be done and we do it over and over and over again. That's why we come to this table, the Lord's Supper, every single week in our church. Why? Because we go out into the world and we get bombarded by the flesh, the world, and the devil. It presses in on us, and we're starving by the end of the week, aren't we? And we come into this place every single week, and we feast on Jesus. 
We feast on His Word. We feast on the Gospel. We come to this table and we fill up with Jesus in Gospel. We're reminded of what is true and right. The Lord's Supper is also a family meal. It's not meant to be taken alone. And it's not meant to be taken privately. Think about the Jewish tradition. Each Passover, they would celebrate the meal with their families. That's why I often say that the Lord's Supper is a family meal. Well, then the question is, okay, well, then why aren't the disciples with their families? Well, because Jesus is creating a new family. Remember when Jesus is asked about his family, and he looks and he says, my brothers and my sisters, and he looks around and he says, it's you. It's my followers. You are my brothers and sisters. You are my family. And so as you partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, I want you to look around. I want you to look around in this room, and I want you to remember this is family. That these people are in this room are your family. You see, this table puts you at a whole new family table. And the center of your new table is the Lord Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson in his book, Love in Hard Places, listen to this quote. What binds Christians together is not common education. It's not common race, not common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of that sort. Christians come together because they have been saved by Jesus Christ. Then listen to this. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. And so as we come around this meal, remember we are united as family around nothing else but Jesus. And then the last thing, very briefly, the Lord's Supper is a foretaste of a better meal to come. Look at verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when you drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Isn't it interesting that in the Passover tradition, there was a final and fourth cup? Well, notice here, there is no final and fourth cup. Verse 26, they sung a hymn, they arose, and they departed. Why is there no final cup? Because it was Jesus' way of saying, a cup still remains. And I will drink that cup when I come again. And when I gather my people up. And when I make all things new and we feast at the great wedding feast of the Lamb. Think of the Lord's Supper. I've heard it described this way before by Joe Novenson, who's a former pastor at Lookout Mountain Prez. But I've had this situation with my girls as well. And think about the Lord's Supper as standing next to a grill. The big green egg. And we were out back last night at our house and we were grilling. And inevitably the girls will say, what are you cooking? And they will want a piece. And I will cut off a piece of steak or chicken or Koneka sausage or whatever it is. And because they love me, they always say, I can't wait to eat. I can't wait for dinner. Why? Because that was just a foretaste. That was just an appetizer because it's a promise that there's more where that came from. That's the Lord's Supper. 
That is this meal. It is an appetizer. It is a foretaste of the great wedding feast of the Lamb. It's a way for us to say, I know it's coming. Because we get to taste it every single week. And as surely as we taste the bread and cup this morning, Christ will come again. And he will drink the fourth and final cup. And he will make all things new and we will feast together at the great wedding feast of the Lamb. Are you ready for the table yet? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for living for us. Thank you for dying for us. Would you forgive us for the ways that we deny, betray, and abandon you? Would you help us to know our own hearts? But at the same time, I pray that you would help us to rest in your grace and to call out to you, Holy Spirit, to help us to live for you. As we come to the table, remind us that as surely as we eat the bread and taste the cup, you have saved us from our sins. Help us to remember that and rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen.